Hey guys, my name is Ben Berman and welcome to the Starting It Up podcast where I interview all types of entrepreneurs uncovering actionable steps and inspiration that you can use to build your business, your side hustle, whatever it is that you're trying to create and live the life you've always wanted. Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking with Adi Agashi, who is a product manager at Microsoft. He's the author of Swipe to Unlock, a best-selling book about how to break into technology alongside his uh, his co-authors, Neil and Parth. Uh, they recently came out with a book called Bubble or Revolution, which really breaks down the blockchain craze and, and what the future of blockchain and crypto uh, is going to look like. Adi, you've done a ton of entrepreneurial stuff in your past. You you ran a, a, a app building and website building company before, and and now you're you know working in big tech. Interesting story, and I want to hand it over to you. Kind of start at the beginning. Like, can you tell the audience what led you to be so interested in technology, and what were the steps that you had to take to to get into that field? Yeah. So thanks for having me, Ben. I'm really happy to be on your show and. Um, I can definitely do that. So the way I got started, um, I actually came to Cornell as a uh, pre-med student. And quickly I realized by just talking to a lot of founders at school that entrepreneurship was something I wanted to explore. And the first job that I had was at this company called Spear. It was a news analytics company and I was doing sales. And I think that experience really just helped me understand how to get a startup off the ground. This was the first internship I had in school. And uh, basically, since we were making news tech for publishers, it involved a lot of cold emailing, cold calling, um, and just figuring out what the needs of these large publishers like the Boston Globe and Wall Street Journal were. And I think just by talking to these customers and influencing the product teams to build features for them, that whole experience was my first avenue into technology. I would be learning about, you know, the monetization models that these publishers used, how they were assessing the technology, and then take it over to our engineering team and help define the requirements and the algorithm that we were using to make the models behind our technology more robust and and deliver on the KPIs that these publishers were measuring um, in the A-B test that eventually led them to adopting the platform. And really during that experience, what stood out to me was I had a mentor who, um, she has, she's still a mentor of mine now, and we still catch up um, whenever I'm, I'm back in Ithaca for anything. But she was this very uh, seasoned entrepreneur who had had multiple exits, and she just mentored a lot of students. And she just taught me that the number one thing that matters um, more than anything is more about going out there and, and not being afraid to take chances and talking to your customers and just learning, even if you don't know anything, even if you're um, new to a space, that's the number one thing that you can do to grow as a person. And she would do these very interesting challenges with me. I remember um, I was doing cold calls one day in the office and uh, she walked by and and she was just you know listening to me and afterwards I, I asked her like how am I doing like do you, do you think I can improve my script do you think like there's a better opener like um, did I transition too abruptly and no she said like you know you're doing fine there but I do have you know some advice for you she um, told me like she gave me this challenge she literally walked into the office supply cabinet she came back with a handful of paper clips and she said I know this is going to sound really dumb 
but I want you to take like a two hour break, go outside um, and literally talk to people on the street and take this handful of paper clips and bring me back the highest item of value you can trade these paper clips for. And I was just like taken aback by this. I didn't expect this type of yeah. like, I want something tactical. I wanted like something to like, you know, just like improve my, what I was saying and, and improve my like conversion rates. But I did it. And and when I did it, I immediately realized like at first, like when you start explaining this, like people don't have time for this one. And the second thing is like, so you have to come up with some clever way of spinning it. And eventually like, you know, you'll like link the paper clips together and like say you're making a bracelet or like you'll like try to have make this a conversation over. And eventually I just realized like it doesn't matter what I said. As long as I painted some sort of story, made them laugh, regardless of what I was saying and got them engaged, eventually I could take them um, and and get them to make some sort of trade. If I explained to them what my mentor had told me or um, spin up some story behind the item that I had just traded for and uh, why I wanted to trade it with them. Like th- these things, like slowly, I just started picking up on. And when I touched base with her after that, she was like, you know, nah, I think you probably got the reason why I was telling you, but to make it more explicit, it's basically because like, you're doing fine on basically the high level thing is it doesn't really matter what you say. Um, in the end, what matters is how you navigate towards that end goal that you have. If you have some mm-hmm. end target end zone that you're trying to move your customers along, you can just have a natural conversation with them, understand what their needs are, get to this whole situation of being uncomfortable makes you in like a very vulnerable state and makes you at the same time, not, it makes you more desensitized to fear. And so you're less nervous about messing up and you're just trying to naturally guide that conversation towards that end state. And so doing activities like that, like she was very good at forcing, forcing me out of my comfort zone like that and, and just challenging me to, to do these things that push me. And I think um, that's how I really, I know it's a long answer, but that's how I like really got into entrepreneurship and tech. And she was a very big, role model and, and influence on my life and um, still a, a close friend and mentor to this day. Awesome. So, I, I mean, hearing that, it, it's both very cool uh, and, and it's it's great that you, you know, got the chance to, to learn about that and got so inspired early on in your career. But I think one of the things that's a bit worrisome or like scary in a way, it's like, imagine if you hadn't uh, had that experience, what would you still be doing? Do you think like you'd still be on, on the pre-med track? Would, would you... Would you, I mean, do, do you think the entrepreneurial spirit was always inside you? It just had to be um, kind of lit up and, and, and found? Or do you think that maybe if you didn't have this experience or a similar experience, you would have went a completely different route? I think that was one of the main things that drew me to Cornell. I saw that um, they were investing heavily in, in entrepreneurship and um, it, it seems dumb, but like I would watch episodes of Shark Tank and just like, be inspired by it. I think that that show did an excellent job of making it very entrepreneurship, very mainstream. It's this thing that like um, it shed a lot of light into like valuations and um, just like different business models of companies. And uh, it it just inspired a lot of people. And I I was there, I was in high school when that show first came out and um, aired and it just made me like more interested because I always had this like Tended, like it was always in my personality to like try new things, but this just made me realize more so that I'm I might also be interested in um, you know starting my own business one day. And so I explored that interest more during my time at Cornell. And yeah, I think I I got lucky. So I I don't know if it's a nature versus 
nurture thing, but um, I, I definitely think a lot of it, it's a little bit of both for me. I think uh, I was genuinely always interested, and in my personality was always to to explore new things, and and circumstances just happened that I could take advantage of of these things um, at school. Gotcha, gotcha. It was super interesting. So it definitely seems like you know it's a mix of multiple things that that led you to this, and which is also good. You don't really want your life to to be like dependent on just like a couple circumstances kind of flowing in one particular way for you to actually you know get to to where you want to be. Um, so I know that following your entrepreneurial progression, you had this experience at Spear, and then you launched your own uh, company, uh, Bell Apps. Could you speak a little bit about Bell Apps and what you learned from that experience? You were building websites and mobile apps for other companies uh, or, or other people. I'm guessing I'm just going to take a guess that you weren't. Um, were, I mean, were you the act? Were you like coding the actual stuff, or were you essentially acting as the person who is like a salesperson, product manager, to to yeah. you know get this stuff created? And then speak a little bit about like, yeah. Actually, I'll just I'll just uh, turn it over to you to to answer that. Yeah, of course. So um, that experience was interesting. So we were, like you're saying, we were building apps, but at the same time, we were, uh, I positioned positioned it a little differently. I just wanted to take some time um, to explore a lot of different problem spaces and grow myself and my ability to help out different industries and, and just see how well I could strategically think about different areas. And so that's why I started doing that. And um, I realized that there were a lot of, so like the clients varied across a lot of um, different profiles. Like for example, there would be some, you know, MBA students or um, people who are professionals who don't have time because they're working and they have ideas and, and they would need help um, developing their software. And on the flip side, there would be existing businesses like um, athletic departments who um, have stadiums where they have ticket sales and we would run machine learning on their you know data sets to optimize ticket pricing and recommend optimal strategy and so these things involve a little bit of uh, coding and more regression models and statistics and more math and then the strategy aspect of it and then the other side of it is more technical building things in-house and then um, offering them to clients now both of these things drew upon my experience um, in college so in college i before bell apps i started this uh, I was trying to make a peer-to-peer food delivery service. Back then, Uber Eats didn't exist. And, and so I wanted to make some sort of model where people who are uh, basically on, on campus is like three primary zones. There's like North Campus, West Campus, and College Town at Cornell. And so I wanted to make sure that if anyone was coming in and out of these zones um, and ordering any sort of items from a you know department store or from and, and from a grocery store that they could like their friends or neighbors could basically tag on to that order and the deliverer could make a little extra money if he or she had a car um, to do that and the problem was like throughout that experience like we, we launched the app we got it out and it, that first experience like you're saying like you were wondering like what roles I played I did a lot more coding in that um, project I eventually brought on a team and then PM them um, throughout that process and then um, obviously as you're running it you just help um, you know scale up these these operations and you play a piece in um, every aspect of the business but as we were doing that eventually that got shut down um, I got a cease and desist from Cornell for a couple of reasons for that um, one was because we were uh, it, this is like a safety hazard doing these deliveries on campus because it increases like 
foot traffic and like the deliveries what? were oh that's pretty, ridiculous so pretty, i mean it's pretty ad hoc too right like we were delivering these we had like certain areas on campus where we said like meet at the flagpole on west campus where we're gonna have the deliveries and that's like uh a lot of traffic in and out of like these areas so that was one secondary reason was um i was using the Cornell student authentication system, which technically you're not allowed to um, without uh, <laughs> getting like formal permission. That's like yeah. a real reason. <laughs> and then the third reason is I was running servers in my in my dorm room um, to host all of this stuff. Um, eventually, I moved those to um, the cloud, but then uh, that was running into some like uh, you just can't do that in, in a dorm room. So they did that, and that, that experience like taught me a lot. It taught me how to get something off the ground. I was able to actually ship things. I was able to recruit a team, and I learned that like, I mean, I had no experience doing this, but I learned that like slowly you can learn and you can get out there and, and piece it together one by one and and execute on this like vision that you have. Um, and at the peak, that that service was doing. Um, around 500 orders a week and so it wasn't it was like a decent size that we were able to scale it at just one school um, and so I took that those learnings I shipped stuff in the in iOS Android I had like past projects to show and that's how I was able to convince clients to sign with me for that um, I can keep talking but I, if you want to if you have any follow-up questions yes yeah, so I, I mean I think I think that's really cool and um and this is kind of what I always say and, and what I and what we always talk about on, on this podcast, like you have to go and, and do stuff. You're never going to know if you're good at something. You're never going to know. Uh, you're never going to get better. You're never going to essentially develop the skills if you're not practicing and if you're not utilizing those. So, you know, on, on one hand, you can say, oh, this company failed. But on the other hand, uh, the skills and, and the experience that you learned from this propelled you so much further ahead of other people um, who might just be only studying or only doing schoolwork. And, and I think that's like, you know, the key to all of this. It's like you have to kind of be exercising different, you know, functions and, and really, you know, you, I mean, you don't have to, but like, it really depends on what you want. So if, if you do want to, you know, grow as rapidly as possible, it does help to, to do many different things. So we can fast forward a little bit. So you ended up, um, you know, joining, um, uh, did you, did you join Microsoft right away or, uh, yeah, I joined after working on Bell, I, I came to Microsoft. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, so yeah, you, you, you left school, you, uh, left Bell and then you joined Microsoft. So a lot of people will now kind of, you know, in your position, you have a, a, a great job at a, at a big tech company. You're, you know, probably have a lot of work, but you know, high, high reward, uh, position. You end up actually collaborating with, a uh, product, uh, two other PMs at Facebook and blanking on the other, uh, what's in Google. Exactly. So the three of you ended up collaborating and putting out a book called swipe to unlock ended up Mm -hmm. becoming uh, a bestseller. Um, you know, I saw it all over LinkedIn, uh, when, when it was coming out, what, I mean, what made you do that? Like, you you know, from, from one perspective, you, you're working on, on your company, at your company, and I'm sure you have, you know, a full plate there, but, but you, you wanted to kind of go out of your comfort zone, I'm guessing, because you've never written a book before. This was your first time. What made you want to do that? And what were some of the biggest takeaways from that experience? Yeah, yeah. So um, there were two reasons. So why, why we made this. So um, I think when we, 
were just like looking at the space and trying to learn more and, and understand what these technology concepts were. Like I, I studied computer science in school, but I still didn't learn in any class uh, how, any CS class for that matter, how like some of these tech strategy decisions are made at big companies. Like why, why did Microsoft acquire LinkedIn? Like why did Facebook decide to pay over $42 per user um, when they bought WhatsApp? Like these types of questions that are CS related, are strategy related, um, but also like require a more deeper understanding of the synergies of the business models and how mm-hmm. they, the, the next five to 10 year vision roll, rolls out. These are things that are just not talked about in CS classes. They're definitely talked about in MBA curriculums, but we realized that there was this gap. It's either like talked about on the surface level strategically, or it's not gone um, too much in depth on like the, the actual technical synergies that are there. And so that was one thing. And when second thing was when we talked, when I was talking to a lot of my clients um, at Bell, I realized they would ask me the same sort of issues um, about how these tech, how does big data work? What is machine learning? How can we use it on the project that we're doing? Like, how can we make it better using that? And some of these are abstract concepts that they just hear in the news and, and they want to apply them to, you know, whatever project they're working on because people assume that these are one trick ponies that'll solve all of your problems. And so I thought, we thought to ourselves, like, if we had a Freakonomics for tech, something that took interesting cases, and then when dissecting those cases, explained the underlying technology, we could make a very sticky content, whether it's a book, whether it's like something else, that would basically be able to solve this like market need in, in this niche. And so we did a lot of research. We spent a lot of time brainstorming the different topics that we could talk about, talking to potential readers and segmenting them and A-B testing, what sort of chapters um, they would like to read about, what sort of uh, cases within the chapters would be of most interest to them. And when we got a final list of it, then we started the process of interviewing a lot of these professionals at other tech companies and getting their thoughts on like some of these um, more niche spaces like payments and emerging markets and big data. And we pieced together these things. We wrote the book and uh, luckily it found uh, a good fit with uh, people who are just trying to become digitally engaged citizens. They see, you know, Zuckerberg testifying on Congress and congressmen asking questions that don't, aren't really relevant and they just want to be more well-educated and (laughs) well-rounded. And then on the flip side, they, uh, you know, it was people who are looking to break into tech or they're doing consulting in tech and they just want to have a stronger understanding because they studied business and they don't understand some of the underlying concepts or it's software engineers who understand the tech, but they want to learn the business strategy and, and they're still breaking into tech. And so luckily those two audience segments um, found that of value and, you're right. It was it was a pretty abstract thing, but I think Parse and Neil are amazing. They they're all, they're PMs at uh, Facebook and Google respectively, and uh, they we all did a fantastic. Like we we worked together really well. We did a good job of breaking down um, the process and and delegating the work between us. And I think it just we jived pretty well, and that's why we decided to work together on publishing uh, the second book recently in the last two weeks. What one of the interesting things about uh, your your last book and 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 your current book is that a lot of what you focused on was interviewing experts in the space, using those interviews and and those insights to then combine with your own opinions and your own views, and then you know putting that all together and then writing a book. I think you know one of the questions I was I was I wanted to ask is how do you 
in a world that's so crowded with content, with people saying they're experts at X, Y, and Z, how do you stand out as an actual expert, um, especially when doing something for the first time? Because it, with tech, I, I guess it's like one thing, you know, you're, you're all working at these big tech companies. You do have although at the time it came out, you weren't working there for that long, you do kind of have this uh, this uh, place to stand on where you could say, I, I'm an insider, I understand this. For the second book, uh, Bubble or Revolution, when you talk about cryptocurrency, I feel like it's a bit more... Um, it's, it's a bit more shaky because everyone is talking about the space and mm-hmm. I would say almost everyone talking about it doesn't fully know what they're talking about or, or understand kind of the underlying... Uh, stuff behind crypto. Um, so how yeah. do you how do you position yourselves as the thought leaders that can be counted on and can be trusted? Yeah, so I think there's there's two approaches, so two things that we actively do to build that credibility. One is we are very well read. We'll like talk to a lot of these founders of companies. Well, actually, before. Um, talking to any developers or the founders or VCs of a project will make sure to read the white paper and, and stay in tune and process it and give our thoughts on it. And just by doing that over and over, every time you see an update in the news, whether it's in blockchain or general um, tech, we, it just like you just naturally start thinking like, what's next? And, um, you know, Facebook's announcing Libra. So why would they do that? You know, X, Y, Z reasons. And if they did those things, what would it allow them to do? And like, are there like, feedback loops here that will allow them to even scale to a larger size. And you just naturally start thinking about these things. And these are the frameworks that we used when we wrote Swipe to Unlock. And it, by putting pen to paper, we were able to um, help other people. Hope, that, that was our goal. Our goal was to not only teach you the tech, not only teach you the business strategy, but basically teach you how to think critically about these things that are happening in the world. And so that if we teach you these things looking back, looking forward, you'll be able to take, when you see the pieces of news and you you see these things happening, you'll be able to form your own opinions and think critically about these situations. And so we do that on a daily basis. So that's one. And then two is, is we share these insights. We're very active on LinkedIn and I'm pretty active on Quora. Um, talk to a yeah, lot of people, yeah, answer a lot that. of questions. Yeah, Quora's yeah, uh, great. Course, great. I, I I really like it. You can have very, you know, direct conversations with your readers on both of these platforms. And in the beginning, you know, your engagement may not be as high as you want it to be. But slowly over time, people start realizing that when there's a lot of, like LinkedIn, for example, has a lot of other content on there, which is either just news or it's, um, you know, a lot of. I don't want to say it's like spammy content, but it's content that is yeah, like I the agree. notification. Yeah. Like the way their notification system works is it's meant to get you on, like to clear those things every day. And so um, there's a lot of content on there that, that may not be of relevance to you. And so by putting out content that um, like predictions that we see based on events that are happening on the market or sharing some of this thinking um, with our readers, it, it, it's just naturally interesting and it sparks conversations. And so that's what we tried to do. And, and that um, worked pretty well across Quora and LinkedIn. And that's what's helped us you know, gain this following. And I think that's, that's the key to it. Just making sure that you don't, you put out content that's engaging and, and of value to your readers. You, you active every single comment, every single message I get on LinkedIn, I still respond to um, every single person. And um, just by being able to do that, I think people um, are more 
they, they become more engaged with, with your content as you post it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, a, that's a great point that you made right at the end, how you're, I'm looking at your uh, LinkedIn right now, you have over 31,000 followers, but the fact that you know, you're still actually responding to messages is, is, is kind of wild. You know, most people don't, like I, I'll have people kind of messaging me, I, I, granted if it's a real person and not like, you know, a spammer or someone obviously just sending a uh, copy and paste like sales pitch, I'll probably respond. But I, I can imagine like once you reach those really high numbers, you get flooded with different requests and different inquiries and, and it might be a challenge to, um, to, to get to everyone, but really, when it comes down to it, you, you have to start from from the bottom up and and build up that uh, that core base of, of supporters and people who are following you. Because you know, as you get bigger and bigger, um, the people who were there from the beginning are, are going to want to be more involved, just because they feel like they're growing with you. And uh, uh, and that's really interesting to see. And and I think you know, as as we get past these first couple weeks with with uh, with your new book, we'll, we'll start seeing. Um, you know, a, a bigger and bigger following uh, approaching. So to, to dive a little bit more into into the entire concept of the book, it was it was a really interesting read um, for everyone out there. You know, it's a quick read, read it in a couple of day, couple of days. And co- coming from my point of view, I had you know first heard about crypto in early twenty uh, early twenty seventeen kind of, you know, started buying then just because I saw it as, you know, a cool uh, thing to speculate in, uh, worked out really well for, uh, for a while. Um, and then as everyone knows, you know, there was the, uh, the crash, um, that left a lot of people in, in a weird spot where, you know, towards the end of the, of 2017, people who knew absolutely nothing about Bitcoin or crypto, not saying I knew that much, but I knew, you know, something, um, we're putting money into into an into an asset that you know lost like eighty percent of its value over the next few months. Uh, a year later, um, we are in a position where we're seeing crypto kind of sort of rallying back up, and it's becoming a, a talking point again. But you, what you did that was really interesting with this book is that you helped you you presented the case for crypto and then the case against crypto, and then you know you laid out all the facts and then you essentially presented your opinion. I thought that was really helpful. You know, I, I learned a lot. I think I'm going to hand it over to you to, to discuss a little bit more, but what was like the biggest goal for you when writing this book? And personally, what what was the biggest piece of like insight that you had gotten from actively speaking to uh, experts in the space um, that you, you know, didn't know at the beginning, but, but after you ended up interviewing people and writing the book, you started to realize about crypto and blockchain. Mm, those are both really good questions. So since we wrote Swipe to Unlock, we were always thinking about, you know, everyone kept asking us, like, are you going to write a second book? Like, is there something else that you're like working on? And at the time, the honest answer was no. Until 2017 and that huge, you know, year-long bull run happened in the end of uh, uh, the year, twenty, and then beginning of 2018, everything fell. And no other technology got as much limelight as Bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrencies did um, during that period. And so we had a lot of questions flooding in, coming to us across, you know, LinkedIn, email, Quora, um, Amazon reviews. Literally, everyone was asking, like, what's what's going to go on with with Bitcoin? Should I buy it? What is what is blockchain? How does it work? Is this you know going to solve a lot of the 
is this going to take over and, and ruin like cloud? Is it going to um, overthrow a lot of existing apps that are in service? You started seeing, just like you saw with um, uh, this huge burst of apps when Uber came out, there was, when Uber came out, a lot of people were making Uber for XYZ, Uber for food, Uber for um, dog sitting, Uber for laundry, like all these things started coming out just like that. When, you know, that bull run was happening, you start, started seeing a lot of decentralized apps on Ethereum or um, other scalable chains like that that were um, decentralizing Uber, decentralizing Airbnb, decentralizing all these existing services that we use in our day-to-day lives. Um, and so it was just a lot of, and it was a very polarizing topic. You saw, you know, half the people are super bullish on it and they are all in and they think it's going to change the world. And the other half of the audience is thinking this is a speculative thing. I'm never going to touch it. Um, I saw the huge crash on uh, that happened last year and, and I don't know what to do with it. And so it's a very polarizing subject too. And so we wanted to basically take a pragmatic approach to it, spend a lot of time interviewing um, these people that are still after the crash investing and, and working and developing and running these companies in the space. And I know you've worked at Republic and we talked with Republic's crypto division as well. And uh, Kendrick, the CEO, he, he gave us a you know good deep dive into um, why uh, it, it makes sense for you guys to launch in that space. And we kept repeating this process. And what we slowly realized was we had to tweak some of our opinions that we once held on the subject. And we, we maintained, a, in the book, we maintain a very neutral uh, opinion and tone. We are not super bullish and we're not bearish either. We, we first, like you're saying, we present, we explain how the technology works. We present both sides of it, like why people think um, the technology is so good and, and, and they're super bullish. And on the flip side, why, what are some of the shortcomings of the technology? And then we go into our thoughts and our analysis on it. And we, we give um, some of those views and I'm happy to dive into um, how we, how we think about that. But fundamentally that answers those two questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a great point. And I think um, just personally for, for me, the, the biggest uh, takeaway uh, from the book that, that made me start thinking about blockchain differently than, than what I had thought about it before. For some reason I was always, you know, I would always think about the public blockchain essentially meaning, you know, everything that's uh, public and available. So something that, you know, requires uh, many different, you know, private people essentially, essentially mining to, to, to get more blocks and more uh, crypto. And, you know, it, it's, it's very decentralized amongst, it's probably the most decentralized. And then there's the private blockchain that is centralized and that's you know under something like a company where where a company like a like a walmart or an ibm can have that and uh and utilize it for, for just for their own business and you know i'd always think about the public blockchain but after reading you know this book i started realizing like the private blockchain is a lot more it's it's actually being implemented today you know granted mm-hmm. so is the the public blockchain but a lot of those are, are scams and haven't worked out well. I think it's quite interesting that, that the private one is, is doing so much better and it's, you know, seemingly under the radar, probably because like, you know, companies are like doing a million different things and it's it's just the way it is. I'd love to get your thoughts on that and, and what was like the biggest learnings um, from there because, you know, that's kind of what the takeaway was, you know, the, the underlying mm-hmm. technology can be applicable and beneficial uh, in this case, but in, in that particular case, but overall, 
it still might be too early or, or just not um, compatible with, you know, large scale like adoption all over the world. Yeah, so that's a good point. So it's ironic, you know, like the blockchain and Bitcoin, so Bitcoin was made um, as a way to overthrow these existing power structures. Um, it was made to decentralize money and have have control to the miners who are in the network and prevent any one authority from having full control over over it. It was a fixed supply and and the economic model that they described was really to put that set that whole thing into motion. But what we see happening is with the involvement of different development projects and how we see adoption picking up right now, blockchain solves a very specific problem. When there are multiple parties involved, and for some reason, you can't all the time 100% trust every single party, and you need to move uh, assets that are worth large amounts of money between these different parties, whether these assets are cash or whether these assets are like physical goods that you're moving back and forth, uh, or even like real estate or any other asset class, that's when blockchain makes the most sense for you to adopt and use. And if you think about it, the, only, the main consortium of people that are going to face this type of problem are private, large enterprise companies. And so that's where you see a lot of this adoption coming in, in supply chains, in financial transactions on the back end. In a lot of these use cases, you see big companies like Microsoft's uh, blockchain team partnering with JP Morgan's Quorum protocol. And by doing these things, uh, they're able to scale the private blockchain use cases uh, for these different segments. And so these partnerships that come about, these uh, actual use cases that are being developed and, and applied, like for example, um, I was talking to some so Synaptic Health Alliance. Um, that is the largest insurance um, alliance between different insurance providers in the U.S. And they're working together because for record keeping and sharing these patient records, not just patient records, um, there's some privacy implications, but sharing um, other forms of uh, record keeping in terms of uh, what sort of like treatments and prescriptions are being assigned. And, and even in some cases, cases, patient records, if they have, um, you know, full permission from, from those patients, what happens is, distributing them amongst different providers if there's a change or if there's um, any complications between the two is a very difficult process because um, each of them has their own data records and stored in a different format and uh, it's hard to validate that certain things are true and so by they're, they're working together they partner together um, and i spoke with uh, people who are working on that project like the architects of, of their blockchain initiative, which is rolling out later in the year, that will basically solve some of these things. And they're going to go into production on some of these things later in the year. And so time and time again, we're just seeing these large companies adopt it because it's a natural fit for them. So it's ironic because this technology came out to disrupt these people that power structures and, and people um, who are in power. But what, what I think is going to happen is these existing companies are going to look to their backends, figure out what specific markets or what specific applications require blockchain and make these backend efficiencies that consumers will likely never see. You and I, when we make a financial transaction, we probably will never know whether our money is sitting in a database or it's sitting in a blockchain. Um, but 
what we will notice is faster transaction times, lower fees, and just overall better user experience because of the, a lot of these optimizations that they're doing in the back end. And so that's how I see it playing out. And uh, yeah, to answer, I mean, it's, it, it's ironic really, but I think that's how, that's how the trend is going to play out. Yeah, d- definitely ironic when, like like you're saying, in in the immediate future, I definitely believe that you know it's going to be geared towards uh, what you're saying you know, for private businesses and, and on the private blockchain. But I, I still feel like I don't know, maybe you know, five, ten, twenty years into the future, um, maybe it's something built on the blockchain or, or something completely different. Because I think people are never going to you know stop wanting to create something that is fully decentralized and doesn't require a like authority like a government or something so um it'll be interesting to see like you know what that plays out and, and it might just be some brand new technology that we've we've never heard of um but yeah you know fascinating insights and and uh for healthcare in particular i, I think you know most of us can understand why uh it would be necessary in that space just because there's so many issues and, and there's so many moving parts and regulations around it where you know streamlining the process um, would really be beneficial for for everyone and and, and finance as well. Um, just a kind of personal uh, question, you know. I, yeah. I get where you're. Go ahead. No, no, I, I said no, no. I was just agreeing with you. I I, I think oh, okay. you're right. Like 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 when you have this like sort of, it's basically created this like uh, huge huge community of following that has vested interest in keeping that community growing not just because of the vision that they've that they're building towards but also because of um the actual this actual financial incentive for them to see for the miners of for example bitcoin to see the price of bitcoin go because every you know couple of years when the happening happens when the supply uh the mining rate gets gets halved um then they're they're eventually the miners are going to make less and less money unless the price of bitcoin goes up and so they've created this system that is going to keep being developed on and 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 the vision that they set out for is is this like very compelling theory that you should everyone should hold power in the system and so i I agree with what you're saying I, i i think like these things are larger than any one person or any one organization and i think it will perpetually continue over time. It's just right now in the next, in the short term, like the immediate applications that we'll see with blockchain in five to 10 years, I think will be on the private um, side before any of these cryptocurrencies um, that are public and being developed on like Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else, stable coins that are coming out um, will be adopted by an existing power structure, like, and, and become the, you know, national, uh, currency of a of a country will then become digitalized or something. I think I have some theories on that too that we can talk about later. Like certain countries who might be the first to to go out and do that. But um, yeah, you were asking something earlier. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, this is kind of an aside, but you know, I, I get where your uh, point of view is in terms of the application of crypto and and what the value or what like the utility of the coins are. You know, since you did all this research and, and since you're kind of familiar with the space, do you own any as a more of like a, just a speculative investment in case, you know, your theory it does isn't right? And, you know, maybe Bitcoin becomes the next like gold and, and um, shoots up to, to an extreme that, that we can't even really, you know, even imagine at this point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I was talking to a lot of people like I talked to Mike Novogratz. 
And a lot of investors like him, they they pointed out something very in like very smart, very active observation. It doesn't really matter if you know JP Morgan and other banks are using Quorum and um, that blockchain protocol and ledger technology in the back end because the news that's going to come out is going to say Microsoft partners with JP Morgan and all these other banks to um, implement blockchain. When Facebook announces Libra coin, um, it's not actually a blockchain. There are no blocks in what they are proposing if you read their white paper, but it's being branded as a blockchain um, and everyone is talking about it. And just to like, I think either this morning or last night, um, there's like a, a bill in, in the house that's, um, you know, who knows if it'll pass, but the bill is saying that they want to charge Facebook $1 million per day that they keep Libra coin active. Like <laughs> be, there's like a lot of like <laughs> reverse sentiment, negative sentiment around this, this concept. And so regardless of, of whether or not people understand if it's actually blockchain or not, what they're going to hear when they hear these companies adopting it, it's going to create a hype cycle. And that's just how, um, the, like the, the news is going to play out. And so if you look at it, if you look at, you know, Fidelity's recruiting page, you know, careers at Fidelity, you'll see that they're hiring blockchain analysts and they're hiring people with expertise in this to work there. If you look at other, uh, buy side, uh, hedge funds or, or different, uh, prop trading firms, they're hiring a lot of uh, traders in cryptocurrencies. And so what I eventually see happening as, this, as the financial cryptocurrency market matures, I can definitely see uh, these big mutual fund or portfolio managers moving a couple basis points of these funds into cryptocurrencies because having you know 0.5% of your retirement portfolio allocated into these currencies even if you lose all of that money, it's not going to make a big impact on uh, the end goal of, of that portfolio. However, if there's a significant upside in that space, as historically there's been, it can create a lot of uh, value for your clients. And so they can, they'll optimally assess the risk-reward ratios on these things, allocate some basis points of the portfolios towards these um, uh, these speculative assets, and eventually there's a high likelihood that these speculative plays of holding um, some of these currencies could pay off in the long term. So based on that, I think it, you're not wrong. I mean, it, even if, regardless of how the actual adoption happens over time, um, it, this is why I do speculation. So I, I'm hesitant to like tell people to go buy a Bitcoin or Ether or something else, but um, that's the theory behind why uh, one would do that. Yeah, and, and I guess it's it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where if all of these different financial institutions end up buying, you know, into crypto because there's this small chance with a, a you know, outsides risk to reward ratio, then if everyone starts believing that, you know, even though they think the chance is one in a hundred, if like a hundred end up believing that, then it's pretty much like guaranteed for for that actually to become true, which is you know, when you think about it, it's kind of like a larger economic principle. You know, why do people uh, accept, you know, the U.S. dollar for, for their labor or their time? And it's because, you know, there's this belief that this will have this kind of a value and it can be transferred to other things. It's obviously it's a little bit different and, you know, you can trust the the dollar a lot more. But um, I, I think it's like, you know, a philosophical, economical, dis like just 
theory that's like, I mean, not theory, but kind of um, idea that when you start really diving deep into these things, you can kind of realize like how interesting and like strange the the world is and in, in, in how it functions. I agree. And, and it just like you're saying, it just takes one person. It just takes one company to make that decision. And then everyone on the street is going to copy that. And on top of that, like there's a lot of things happening, a lot of custody solutions. There's a lot of problems with, with prop trading firms trading this or, or having, you know, without having these portfolio managers buy into these um, currencies because the actual form of holding the currencies, there's like a security risk with that. If someone takes a private key and just transfers the money out, you just lost that asset. It's not like a stock that's like assigned to uh, a shareholder. Um, it, there's like a higher degree of custody risk with cryptocurrencies. And so a lot of companies like Coinbase are going out there and making these custody solutions that are going to lubricate this uh, and make the ease of entry into this market much, much easier. Um, so I, I'm, I'm with you on, on, on that. I, I think um, we're going to see a lot of players slowly moving into it or like step, slowly stepping their toes into the water and then eventually when everyone realizes that these people are doing it, 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 could, cre- it could create a, this like flood to the market. Yeah, or or it could you know kind of something out of left field where something else is created and then everything gets uh, you know geared toward towards there. But but like you're saying, you know, uh, so many different possibilities and and it's impossible to know until until it's happening. Um, overall, I mean, this is like a super interesting topic that you know you can kind of talk about forever, um, just because you know, no one knows and and it's so top of mind and and you can kind of feel it coming. So it's just like you know, any year now or any month, you know, with, with, I mean, with crypto, you never know but yeah it's it's uh it's definitely uh interesting to to dive further into um but i want to be mindful of your time uh adi and it, kind of to, to wrap this up the final question i i want to ask is you know you you uh started a company you joined uh you went into big tech you wrote two books what do, what do you think your short-term future looks like do you think you're gonna you know kind of pursue this this author role long term or or do you think you want to go back or, or are you you know happy like staying kind of in you know uh big tech or or in tech forever or do you want to go back and maybe you know have another go at starting uh your own company and and trying to take that all the way um what, have you thought about that at all yeah, I have. So that's a good question. So I think one good trade-off of being in big tech is um, I'm able to work on writing and I'm able to work on growing that presence while still uh, working here. Um, and so that's a benefit that I've had. Um, and, and and so I'm really thankful for that. I think um, in the upcoming years, I think uh, an interesting thing that I want to keep doing, one thing that we really started doing a lot last two years was uh, scaling up on talk. So um, we'd get, we, we've been invited to a few, you know, product or AI or blockchain conferences internationally. And we go to them, we do a talk. And then based on our learnings, we then uh, give back and we go to different universities and we do talks there and educate them on, on some of the things that we learned and, and have a, have make it a point to have multiple touch points with students who are just um, entering the space. And that's our way of, of giving back. And, and so, we think that, so I think in the next couple, like my, my goal for the next year or so is to keep doing that, keep growing these books. Um, and I definitely see myself doing a startup at some point. But now that 
you know, both books are published and it's really a matter of just scaling bubbler revolution a little bit more. I think, uh, I am thinking about what the next steps are and, and what the next project that I'll work on is. And so it very well could be, um, you know, jumping into something all in. I'm just not sure if there's anything that I'm working on right now that uh, merits that. So I'm, I'm work, trying a few things on the side right now and seeing um, where they'll go. But nothing is at a stage right now where I can jump all into into something. But definitely long term, that's one of my goals. And um, in the short term, I'll probably be uh, in big tech for um, at least a couple of years. Awesome. And and for everyone out there who is, you know, working at a, at a full-time job and wants to start their own thing, you know, never kind of feel like you need to get into it as soon as possible. Definitely take your time. Uh, like Adi is saying, make sure that, you know, you, you don't want to leave a job, start something with, you know, out any preparation, essentially that's destined to fail. You want to at least, you know, give yourself a solid foundation. And, and when you do reach that point where you think, you know, maybe this is something I could take all the way, then you do it um, if, if that's what you end up wanting to do. So, uh, but yeah, you know, thank, thank you, Adi. It's, uh, it was really great uh, speaking with you, learning more about your entrepreneurial story, the two books you've published for everyone out there. Uh, if you want to check out either of the books, the first one is Swipe to Unlock. Um, and the second one, the one that just came out is Bubble or Revolution. You can get both on Amazon. Uh, we'll link to everything in the uh, in the description. Adi, thank you again uh, so much for, for your time and, and for, uh, for walking us through all of this. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on your show, Ben, and um, thank you too for taking the time out of the, your day. I know it's you're in East Coast, so it's it's late over there. Yeah, I mean it's late, but it's the best time to uh, to record a podcast. I feel you know, um, especially and like you know when when it comes to just this podcast, like I I work full time. Um, you have to you know either do it in the morning or do it at night, and and if if like you want to kind of do something like a side hustle or anything, uh, there's definitely plenty of hours in the day. So. Um, you know, you know this. You're writing books, you know, speaking and working at uh, at Microsoft. So uh, it's really just comes down to like you know, figuring it out and and making every day count. I completely agree with that. Yeah, well said. Awesome. All right. Thank you again, Adi. Great speaking with you. Yeah. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, go rate and subscribe to the podcast. Even share it with your friends if you found the lessons valuable. We do the show every week, so stay tuned for more episodes. And till next time.